This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. My name's Kevin. I'm the lead pastor here at Vortex. So good to have you with us. You're the crowd that probably stayed out a little bit later than the 9 o'clock partying last night. So it's good to have you with us this morning. Um, We are starting a new series called Dream Job. And I just want to walk you through some statistics, I think, that help expose why this is so important for us to talk about the the joy that God wants us to have in our work. Uh, As we kind of step into a new year, it's a brand new year, happy new year to you today. Uh, I I just want you to see if you're an average person, where some of your time in the next year is going to go. If you're average, the average person will spend 244 hours in the next year on Facebook. That's 10 full days on Facebook looking at what people posted, pictures of kitties, and all kinds of stuff, recipes, whatever your Facebook feed is full of. Ten days on Facebook. Look at this. If you have a smartphone, I'm an iPhone guy, maybe 548 hours the average person with a smartphone is going to spend on their phone in the next year. 548 hours on our phone. Now, throughout time, I've challenged our church to kind of become aware of the time that we're investing in things. And uh, sporadically, I've challenged you to take five minutes a day, ten minutes a day. And if you're disciplined enough every day for the rest of the year, starting today, to spend ten minutes in devotional time, intentionally praying and seeking God, you will, in the course of this year, spend 61 hours in prayer and study, which is significantly more than the average American will spend in prayer. If you today are a family person and you'd say, I love my family, the greatest joy I have is spending time with my kids. Well, if you can scratch out three hours with your family each day, over the course of the next year, you will spend 1,095 hours of quality time with your family this year. And if you're like me and you have some digestive issues and you I go to the bathroom every once in a while. I know we all have to do that, right? The average person will spend 548 hours in the bathroom. If you're a teenage girl, it's probably a lot above average, all right? But the average American in the next year will spend 1,789 hours working. 1,789 hours. Now, many of you are above average, okay? You're going to spend more time than that. Statistically, the only thing that we will do more than work is sleep. But for many of us, if I'm going to ask you this question, what's your favorite day of the week? Just think about it right now. Across the room, statistically, the most favorite day is going to be Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. The least favorite day, as we would poll, would be Monday. I believe that as you heard those statistics in the opening, they're deeply connected to our perception of work. The way that we think about the work that we typically set about doing on Monday morning. 
I want you to understand the truth. I want to spend a good bit of time as we get started today trying to uncover this and unearth this for you so that you can see it. That our greatest struggles are born from places where our perception is a great distance from God's truth. Keep that. I'm going to break this down. All right. Our greatest struggles. Now, for many of us, we would, we would say our, our struggle is fear or worry. I ask some folks on Facebook, what, what's one thing you, you just want to do this this year? What's one thing? And so many people say, I just want to quit worrying. That worry, anxiety, fear, struggles, problems, depression. Our greatest struggles are born from places where our perception, the way that we think about things, the way that we functionally live, is a great distance from God's truth. Now, I'm, I'm just going to show you in, in the form of some whiteboards what this looks like. So let's think about truth in this way right here. There's Jesus at the middle, right? Isn't that a wonderful image of Jesus coming on the cloud? Jesus, right? And truth, right? Jesus says in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. We need to think about the Jesus as the truth that sets the way to life. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you are not living in the truth of Jesus, you are not fully alive. So life is deeply connected to truth. And Jesus is at the center of truth. But we tend to go different ways because in truth, there are several components that make up the way that we embrace truth. There's the freedom now to live in the truth that God's given us. But then there's the discipline to apply the truth. We tend to go two different ways. Look at this next one. Now, don't associate these words with their political meanings, uh, meaning something very different. See, sometimes with truth, we, we get liberal, which is where we have a lot of freedom but no discipline. We, we em embrace the, the freedom that comes with that, but we don't embrace the discipline. Then sometimes we get conservative, where we have a lot of discipline but no freedom. You, you can think of many examples of the way that this can work out in our personal lives. But here's what I want you to see today. Is that sometimes we look at this continuum and we go, I'm, I'm not really living in full freedom with discipline. I'm, I'm, I'm probably a little bit over here where I have a lot of freedom but I'm not being as disciplined in the areas I should be. See, the distance between where we are and where the truth of God is, this is where our problems are born out of. Let me just give you an example of how this works for us. Let's think about food. Many of y'all made New Year's resolution, going to get healthy this year, right? Going to eat better. I'm going to lose weight. All that kind of stuff. I love that stuff, all right? We get so excited about it. The gym's going to be packed. I'm going to have to go at like 4 in the morning the next week because everybody's going to be on the cardio machines, lifting weights and everything. So we, get, we just get food so wrong. The God created for, you know, steak tastes good because God made it taste good. All right. I mean, I mean, isn't that an awesome thing? I mean, you just eat a steak and just go, grass made this. That's a miracle. Grass made a steak. It's remarkable. It's insane. But we go the opposite way where, where there's a lot of freedom but no discipline. When we do that, we become a glutton. That's sinful. Okay. That's not fully embracing the freedom and discipline of God's truth. But we can go to the other end, where it's all discipline but no freedom. I mean, this is where eating disorders are born out of this side. I mean, there's some people who look at a daggum uh, Hershey's bar or uh, a Reese's cup, and they just think, they, in their mind process, I will have to do 
47 burpees to work this thing off. They think that way. There's no freedom in their, their expression and understanding of the way that God has allowed us to enjoy. That's a controller. Okay, both sides missing the truth. Okay, so go back to that. We are here, right? Go back, go back to that one. See, I think when we think about work, the reason that we struggle with Monday morning is because we're here. And we're a great distance from God's truth when it comes to the way that God thinks about work. Now go back to the, the food one. In the next week, we're going to invite you to start praying. Next week, we start 21 days of prayer and fasting. And I think sometimes we get to thinking about fasting and we think, well, isn't that just way over here? It's just saying I'm just going to be... No, here, let me, let me explain what fasting is. Fasting is a, is a discipline where, where we say, all right, God, I'm, go I'm going to create room in my life so that I can, I can seek you. Oftentimes, it's based on denial. So here's what it is. It's embracing the freedom to say no. A lot of times, we think of freedom as saying yes. It's embracing the freedom to say no and the discipline to follow through with it. It's fully embracing both of those. So I want you to be thinking about that over the next week. What are you going to fast? We'll talk more about that at the end of the service. So many of us are in that position where our perception of work is a great distance from where God's perception of work is. And out of that distance between where God is and where we are, there are problems that are born. And that's why many of you, you get, get sad on Sunday night and you're grumpy on Monday morning because work is something that we don't see in light of the way that God wants us to see it. We've missed it. So what I want to do is just go back to the scriptures as we get started today. I, I just want you to be able to see uh, kind of in the context of the Bible, the way that God presents work to us before we even get started. The first thing that I want you to see is this, the scriptures open with God going to work. You ever thought about it that way? The Bible opens with God going to work. It's so interesting. You read Genesis 1. The Bible opens with this. What seems to be a conundrum, there's darkness, nothing. And then God gets to work separating the dark from the light. You know what happens at the end of each day after God has worked? He looks at his work and he says, it's good. It's good. See, the Bible opens with God proclaiming that work is good. And then you fast forward thousands of years to the moment when Jesus comes on the scene and all of a sudden Jesus is there. You know what's interesting about the life of Jesus? Jesus lived for what's estimated to be about 33, 34 years. And only three of those were lived in public ministry. So around 15 years old, he would have gained access to a career, started to learn a craft, to become employed. He was a carpenter. Jesus was by trade a carpenter. You ever thought about that? Jesus himself went to work. And because of that, there seems to be great influence as it happens in his life as he works. Because look at this. The teachings of the scripture are often framed in a workplace context. I 
I think it's interesting. Jesus tells 52 parables in the context of all four Gospels. Out of all 52, 43 of those parables are given a context of a workplace. Out of the 40 miracles that are recorded in the book of Acts as the church begins to explode and the power of God begins to be displayed on earth, out of the 40 miracles, 39 of the miracles recorded in the book of Acts have a workplace context. See, I think that sometimes when we start to think about work, we've just drifted so far from the perception that God has of what work is. So what I want to do is, as we spend time today, I really just want to clear that up for us. I want to help define what work is and what work is not. We're going to start there because oftentimes when you're trying to understand something, it's maybe easier to start by trying to understand our misconceptions that are attached to it. So let's get there. First thing in your notes today is that work is not the opposite of fun. Work is not the opposite of fun. So many of us, man, we think about Monday morning as, well, I got to shut down my life, so I got to go back to work. But See, I think that that's a misconception. I remember in 2010, you may not remember this, but the euro compared to the dollar shifted a considerable amount. And so if you went on vacation that summer, it was not uncommon to see a lot of Europeans vacationing in the United States. Their money was getting them a lot more traction, and so they came here. We went on a cruise that summer, and we were paired. If you've ever been on a cruise, you know you get paired with other families. And so we were paired with a young British family. The guy was a firefighter. The mom of the family was a stay-at-home mom. Very sweet, very educated family. And I spent all the time I could just asking them about their lives and about their culture and how they went about living. And the wife made this comment to me. She said, you know, I've always heard it said that Americans live to work, but we Europeans we work to live. The implied understanding of that is that we as Americans, our whole lives are wrapped around our careers. We live to get up and go to work, and we invest so much into our work that we don't really have a life outside of work. And th they, as Europeans, well, they save and they save, and then they do fun things with their money as opposed to what we do, where we just kind of work most of the time. And I think that that statement represents a common misconception about work. That you can't be one at work and two fully alive. Work can't be fun. But I think that that is a lie that we've bought into. The second thing that I want you to see that work is not. Work is not punishment. Work is not punishment. For those of us who grew up in church and are familiar with the story of Scripture and have heard a lot about it, a lot of times we associate work and its origins to Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve had sinned. They had the best deal that a human ever got. They had one rule, don't eat this piece of fruit, and they blew it. I mean, if that doesn't just make you mad, something should, right? But, but I, I mean, it really is this grand demonstration that even if we had one rule, we'd eventually break it too. And so they, they break the rule, sin enters the world, it breaks everything that has to do with anything. And God, at the very end of Genesis chapter 3, pronounces what this, 
the rabbis call the, the curses, where he explains, you sinned, I told you that you would die if you sinned, here are the consequences of your failure. And in that, he says to the man, Adam, that you will now work and it will be a struggle. It will be a struggle. You, you will provide for your family, but it won't be easy. It will be something that you have to work hard to do. Can I tell you, if you read through that very carefully, he tells us that everything's going to be a struggle. If you're going to have a healthy marriage, it's going to be a struggle. Or if you're going to live life and pursue uh, being healthier as a person physically, it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be something you have to fight for. Or if you're going to be healthy emotionally, it's going to be a struggle too. Sin ruined all of it. And because of that, things became a struggle. See, what's interesting is you go back one chapter, the first time Adam meets God, God gives him a job. All right, I'm going to bring all the animals of the world to you. I want you to name them and categorize them and take dominion over them. Before sin ever entered the world, Adam was given a job. But sin did not create work. Work is not punishment. And the last thing I want you to see is that work is not unholy and unimportant. There's some of you that the jobs that you have, you think, well, I, I would really value my work if I had a job like you. Or if I had this job, if I was a doctor, or if I was a counselor, or if I was a teacher. But I, I just go to work and every day I just operate this machine. What difference in the world am I making? Many of you don't know, but I had a career before I did full-time ministry. I was a teacher. I taught five years here in public school in Stanley County. I taught two years in South Carolina. In South Carolina, I worked in Lexington, Richland, uh, District 4. It, it was it kind of comprehensively in the state of South Carolina, one of the most impoverished areas, and also an area that believed desperately in the education of their young people, so much so that they had one of the highest property tax rates in South Carolina, voted in by the people of that area because they wanted to support their local schools. The principal that I worked for was a man named Dr. Robert Max, a former GA football coach at uh, Auburn. He was a four-time 3A state champion uh, football coach at Swansea High School, which is where I worked with him at. A very, very smart man. Dr. Maddox had a PhD in institutional leadership. And when I went and interviewed for the job, I really was looking for a job because I was in a transition and and so I needed to make some money for my family. Dr. Maddox dismissed everybody from the room. And he came in and he sat across from me and he said, Mr. Simmons, I see on your resume that you've worked in a church. I'm just going to take it that you're a believer in Jesus. I want you to know that I am too. And here at the school, we have an opportunity to do something that I've never been able to do anywhere else. And it's to reach people that have very little hope. The town of Swansea has more liquor stores than it does gas stations. An unbelievably high teen dropout rate, teen pregnancy rate. He said, Mr. Simmons, if you come here and work with me, you make a difference. And I said, Dr. Maddox, I'll come here and I'll work with you if you'll do one thing. Let me hang out with you some. Let me ask you some questions. And in that sleepy little town of Swansea, where I got to go eat lunch every once in a while, Marlin's Fishing Things. That's a restaurant in Swansea. Marlin's Fishing Things. I don't even know what the things are, but that's the place that we would go eat. I learned more in that two years from Dr. Maddox than I'm probably ever learned in a 
concise period of time. Uh, things that I learned that are dramatically impacting the trajectory of our church today. All because he didn't view what he did as what he did. It was holy and important. He didn't say, I'm just a principal at a beat up little high school with a bunch of kids that probably ain't ever even going to make it. He found an importance in it. And he found an importance in me and made a big difference. So as we start to talk about what work is, I'm going to take you to two scriptures. I want you to pay attention to these. One is from Genesis 2 where God gives Adam that first job. You see it here where the Lord took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. Y'all say work it. Work it. All right, say it one more time. Work it. There we go. All right. And take care of it. The Lord God put the man in the Garden of Eden to work it. Isn't it neat that God said work it before Missy Elliott said work it? Isn't it neat? Put him right there in the garden and said, Adam, work it. Gave him a job. Now I'm going to fax forth to Exodus 10, verses 26. Look at this. Our livestock, this is Moses talking to Pharaoh, trying to um, basically negotiate the release of the people of Israel. Our livestock must go with us too. Now the hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. You know what's interesting? That word that's there at the end that's translated as a verb, to worship, is the exact same verb that in Genesis 2 is translated to work. So if you really want to understand what work is, the first thing in your notes today is that our work is our worship. Our work is our worship. And so many of us have this compartmentalized view of what worship is. We think about worship in the context of uh, church services and songs and all of that sort of things. But, but let me just give you an, uh, a definition that I love by the great Richard Foster who wrote The Celebration of Discipline. He said that, that worship is our response to the overtures of love that emerge from the heart of the Father. To simplify that, worship is our response. It's how we respond to God. And our work is in association to an invitation that God has given us to step into an opportunity. And when we shift our perspective to understand that work is not necessarily labor, it is worship in my response to a loving and good God. Something begins to shift inside of us, and it's very important. It really leads to what's number two in your notes today, that our work creates a platform for us to share the hope that we have in Jesus. Our work creates a platform for us to share the hope that we have in Jesus. I want you to look at this, Matthew 5, verses 16. It's a, a verse that many of us have seen many, many times. We've read it. I, I want to kind of shift our perspective on this verse a little bit. Let your light so shine before men that they shall see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You've heard that before. A lot of times in the past when I've read that verse, I thought, well, good work. Yes, that people would see the fact that I'm charitable and I give. And they would see the fact that I, I serve. And they would see the fact that, that I help an old lady in the restaurant find her seat or that I help an elderly gentleman to cross the road. They would see my good works. But 
That's not a great understanding of that verse. The Greek word that's translated into good works is the Greek word ergo, which more carefully understood means to labor. See, what this verse is really saying is that when your co-workers sit back and see your good work and see the fact that you take your work as worship, that something will shift in them and their perspective will no longer just be of you, but they will start to see God in you. Isn't it interesting that so many of us don't understand that and we show up at work and we want to have influence. But statistically we know that about 50% of people hate going to their jobs. They say that the only reason that they're going to job is for a paycheck. And we want to make a difference. I believe most people or believers want to make a difference in other people's lives. But I want to remind you of something that's very, very important. Your message doesn't mean anything if your work doesn't. Your message doesn't mean anything if your work doesn't. Does anybody want to receive correction in the job place from a, a, a guy who, who refuses to get to work on time and does a, a halfway job each day? No, they don't. So it's interesting when Jesus shows up on the scene in Mark 6, look at how they introduce him. Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James? Think about this with me. If Jesus had been a bad carpenter, do you think it would have affected his influence in the communities that he worked in? If you had hired him to come in and remodel your kitchen and he came in and ripped out the countertops and never showed back up? If you hired him to make you a new sofa and he made your sofa and you brought it in and it looked good but it fell apart in just a couple days? You think when you heard him preaching about integrity and honesty that all of a sudden you'd sit back and go, man, he's full of... Maybe you would have. Because his work likely created a platform for his message. We see that in his teaching. I heard this story this Christmas of a young man at Target who was pushing in the carts as he was bringing them in from the outside. It was cold. It was raining. But he was smiling, waving at everybody. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Have a good day. And a friend of mine had been there and saw it and just was so encouraged by him, just went up and said, hey, I just want you to know it. I just watched you and man, it's so encouraging to see your attitude. And he looked at her and said, it's real simple. I know who I work for. See, I think that sometimes we get confused about who we work for, don't we? You know, the average person, and so many of you are way above average, but the average person in their work week has the chance to impact between 25 and 50 people. You will have that much personal contact in a week. And our work 
Because of the level of contact that we have, our work creates a context for our mission. So I think that's what you see in the heart of a young man who's so willing to push the carts in and have a good attitude. Say, no, it's, uh, I know who I'm working for. It's also what I saw in Dr. Maddox. Before I ever got to Swansea High School, Dr. Maddox's son, who was at that time very young, was diagnosed with childhood cancer. As any parent would, he mourned and grieved. He said that he wasn't very close to the Lord before then, but it was this catalyst in his life for him to start pursuing God and responding to God the way that he knew that he should. As he watched the care that was provided to his child, where there was such levels of collaboration between all the, the doctors that were working on the case, they literally beat the cancer. And it forever changed him. I heard stories when I came there where other staff members would say, you just don't understand how faithful he was. He never took a day off. He worked hard, but he was there for his family too. And I called him and talked to him this week and said, Dr. Maddox, I just want you to know I'm going to share a little, about, a little bit about you on Sunday. And um, he said, Kevin, I want you to tell him this. If I've ever done anything good, it's only because God lives inside of me and Jesus has done something through me. You see, our work creates a platform for a mission. I think one of my favorite stories that demonstrates this comes out of the late 1800s with a shopkeeper named Jeremiah Lanfear. He owned the business on Wall Street, downtown New York City. And in 1857, as the fall approached, there was a dramatic downturn in the economy. It was devastating to local merchants. Many of them were shutting doors, becoming homeless. And Lenfear, with all of his other friends that owned businesses within the vicinity, was scared. And so he had an idea. On September the 21st in 1857, he posted flyers up and down Wall Street. Prayer meeting. Local business owners, let's get together and pray and ask God to help us. Within a few days, there were hundreds attending. Within a few weeks, there were thousands. By the winter, there were prayer meetings happening in New York City, in Philadelphia, in Washington, D.C. Weekly numbers eclipsing 50,000 people. There were 800,000 people that lived in New York City at the time. Historians record that over 50,000 people made significant conversions during that period of time. The great revivalist Charles Finney would say of that moment that this winter of 
1857 and 58 will be remembered as the time when a great revival prevailed. It swept across the land with such power that at the time it was estimated that not less than 50,000 conversions occurred weekly. All because a shopkeeper that knew the pain and insecurity of other businessmen invited them in their workplace to pray. It was not uncommon during that winter in the middle of the day to go to a local shop and there to be a sign posted on the door, closed for business, will open after the prayer meeting. See, today there are some of you that God is so uniquely positioned in your careers and jobs to minister and meet the needs of people that work with you every day. What if, what if your eyes could be open to the possibility of what God could do through you? What if you could, instead of looking at your your work as an obligation and a, a drudgery, you could start looking at it as worship and an opportunity to see the message of hope that we have in Jesus to come to fullness in the lives of people that you touch every single day? What if there's that person that you know lost a friend or a family member and you went by and said, hey, you know what? I want to come by and pray for you every day. I'm just going to take a minute, but can I come and pray for you every day? What if there's that person that you know is struggling financially that you work with and you say, hey, for the next couple weeks, I'm going to bring lunch for you and me. Would you come eat lunch with me? I'll pay for it. I just want a chance to sit down and encourage you every day at lunch. What if you looked around and realized that every day you sit around with people at lunch and you talk about the weather and you talk about the news and maybe you could capitalize on that moment and get people praying, get people reading God's word together. What would happen? What would happen if we realized that your work is an invitation? To take that moment and capitalize on it and worship God in front of other people to do such a good job that they sit back and look at you in awe. What would happen? I can tell you what would happen. Things would change. That's what would happen. The people that you work with that are broken and discouraged would be healing and encouraged by you and God would use you in ways that you can never even imagine all because we simply let the way that we think about our work become the way that God thinks about it. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.